We always said, even since the beginning, I remember the first Comic-Con with saying, Damon Salvatore is the guy who, whether he is saving a kitten out of the tree or ripping your throat out, has the same smile on his face. And that's hard to get. And Kai, five seasons later, was the first real element that could do that. Not just by trade and how good Chris Wood is, but on the page it was there. And that was really special. And the audience ate it alive. I need to know who you are, what you're doing here, and how it relates to me, or I'm gonna rip your throat out. Temper's gonna get you in trouble, Damon. It's already driven Bonnie away how many times? Oh, 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 wait, I know, 13. You think my temper's bad with her? I like her. You, not so much. Okay, okay, sorry, seriously. I'm just kinda rusty on the face-to-face -face type human interactions. Answers. Now, maybe you should have a drink. That usually calms you down. Thanks. And makes you angry and sad. Then calm again. It's a weird cycle. And look, if, if you really want to know the reason I'm following you, it's because I want to kill you. <laughs> Vein in your bourbon. Who didn't see that one coming? Welcome back to Entertainment Weekly's binge of The Vampire Diaries. I'm your host, Sam Heifel, and I'm joined by executive producer Julie Pleck and series stars Chris Wood and Ian Summerhalder to talk all about season six. As I say at the start of every episode, we will focus on season six, but um, there is a series-wide spoiler alert on this episode. If we want to talk about the beginning, the end, anything in between, we can and we will. We reserve that right. So... I'll start by trying to keep us on track, which is, so the end of five is obviously like Damon and Bonnie holding hands, quote unquote, dying. We don't know what's going to happen. Obviously, six opens and we introduce prison worlds and all of this. But before we get into like the prison world inspiration and the Kai of it all, Ian, what is your reaction? Like, I'm sure you knew Damon wasn't dead, but what was your reaction to to the season five cliffhanger of like, oh, clearly Damon and Bonnie are going to be doing something? Well, I will say at the end of season one, I was really relieved that that I knew that I was going to be in season two because in Lost, I was the first one cast, first one killed. <laughs> and Julie and Kevin assured me uh, that I wasn't going to die, which was like Christmas. But sure. the end of five, um, you know, was kind of exciting because there was just, we didn't, we hadn't had that sort of level of a cliffhanger or something like that for Damon, Stefan, or Elena. And it was also pushing us out of, and, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, Jules, but like pushing us out of that narrative that, you know, you would typically see. Damon, Stefan, and Elena together, you know, clumped into this tight little group. It was mm -hmm. really, Damon had found this other really special relationship. And Kat, and, Kat Graham and I really cherished that because we got to work together and really break down some really sort of granular, awesome stuff. And, you know, knowing that there's some really badass character coming in this space was exciting. Um, no one. None of us could have ever imagined that we would get Chris Wood and what Kai would become, which is 
scene stealing, show stealing, craft service stealing, chairs in a better position, yeah, was... money stealing. Like, you know, it was, he just came in like a, a like, you know, like a, like a tornado. <laughs> well, I mean, getting to, getting to the Kai of it out, Julie, what do you remember about like, the idea for a prison world. Where did I that come from? I don't remember. <laughs> I just, I texted to, I texted um, Brian Young and Dries and Brett Matthews like seven minutes ago. And oh my I'm God. like, whose idea is all this shit? <laughs> and none of us can remember. Like, I haven't heard back from Caroline yet, so we'll see. Brett's like, I think it was your idea. Crushed it. <laughs> like, I have no idea. But. You know, what Ian just said, which is so great for writers, and, you know, I've talked about on this on these episodes about how as writers we were always trying to find ways to, like, freshen the dynamic and not get trapped into the same sort of formula of plot every time and to try mm-hmm. to, you know, diminish the mythology and diminish the magic. And, <laughs> and so what we were able to do was separate our threesome making them believe that Damon was lost to them. And so it wasn't, you know, a, the same old, same old, every single episode of like that sort of pull between Damon and stuff. And, and then we also were able to take two characters and what I call sort of like, it's the equivalent of the trapped in an elevator, like narrative device, which two characters that heretofore have not really had a lot in common right? Who then suddenly are trapped in the elevator and grow to understand each other over the course of the time that they you know, are stuck in this small space. And that narrative device works like a charm in television. And the prison world was that elevator for Damon and Bonnie. And you know, the payoff at the end of the season was that after all of what they went through and built this incredible friendship and like survived this terrible time together, and came to truly love each other in that way, then you have Kai, I know I'm jumping to the end so we can circle back, but you have Kai put Damon in a situation where the only way to save the girl he loves is to kill his newest, most trusted confidant. And Damon had never really been put in that, that, um, you know, that space before, because he would always do anything for Elena, always. So to be able mm-hmm. to like trap him in the elevator, so to speak, build this platonic love story between the two of them over the season, and then put Damon in a situation where the answer to all his problems would be in killing Bonnie and him just being fundamentally unable to do that. It was like the perfect arc for Damon, the sixth season goodbye Elena arc, which is that he had grown so much as a man that you kind of almost knew that even though it wouldn't be easy for him, he would survive without her because he was making this decision selflessly, which is what somebody with humanity and maturity does. And so it, it worked. David, think about it. Every day that you wake up without Elena in your arms, you have a burning desire to kill Bonnie. Of course, you could just get it over with and kill her now. But Elena will probably never speak to you again. If you would have asked Damon a season ago or even 10 episodes ago, he wanted to kill Bonnie. Yeah. So it would have been, would have been perfect. I'm, I'm flashing back to the season two line when he tells Elena, I will gladly let Bonnie die. I will always choose you. And it's like, just you exactly. wait. Four seasons from now. Okay. <laughs> let's, let's, let's talk about Kai. Um, 
Well, Chris, we'll start with you, which is like, what was your introduction to the series? Were you aware of Vampire Diaries before you joined? Yeah, I mean, it was definitely, it wasn't something I watched, but it was something that I knew a lot of people who did and people who loved it. My first sort of close relationship with the show was uh, I was sent sides for um, for Enzo, which I guess he was he the season before, Julie. Was that season five? Yeah, he was mm-hmm. five. Yeah. So I think that was the first time I met Julie as I went in and I read for, for Enzo, um, which obviously was always going to be malarkey, like that just that he is that he that he embodies that so perfectly. But I remember talking to Julie in the room and uh, and hearing just her excitement about the different places they want to go. And I, I went back and checked out more of the show because I'd seen a little bit just before my audition. But um, I, yeah, I, I, I then was fully on board before the character had even been sort of conceived. I don't know. You'd have yeah. to ask Julie uh, when <laughs> when I was in place in her mind for that. I think it came much later. But. <laughs> well, I, yeah, I think uh, I remember callbacks for the part. And you were just so <laughs> obvious. Like you just had, you just were obvious. And and I think your your agent had pointed you out to me and said, pay another attention to this guy. Because I think you and, and Claire had the same agent. So I knew him. And, uh, but, you know, we, you never know. You never know when you cast, you know, Daniel Gillies that he's going to show up and steal the episode. You know, you never know when you cast the season. Joe Morgan. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. You never know when you cast Joe Morgan or Claire Holt, like we've talked about. You, you know, you just never know with new people what they're going to be. And we've had plenty of guest stars on the show that, like, we had huge plans for, and then a couple episodes deeper, I'm like, eh, oh, okay, that that's not going to work. Chris, in fact, didn't Paul Wesley direct your first episode, your first uh, big one with there? You have that big monologue in the Mystic Girl, and I don't remember. That was when I came back. Oh, that was when you came back. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. His first, his first time directing on the show. I wasn't, I wasn't on it. I don't think. At least we didn't have to introduce Chris Wood <laughs> to the show with an episode directed by <laughs> Paul Wesley. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> that is a too much. Paul's episode. Whatever are great, it was, actually. somebody texted me on the day that you were filming and said, "This guy's, this guy's really, this guy's, this guy's got it." And so it might have been me. It might have been you. Yeah, it to be honest, been me. it might have been. Yeah. Nice. Of, that's very nice of you, Ian. It all went down there from, and when I realized you were going to steal every scene, I was like, "This guy sucks." This guy sucks. <laughs> <laughs> No, it's amazing. Being on set with Chris, by the way, listen, I don't say this. I say this in all humility, but also, too, I say this as like, every, and Julie will tell you this, every day to show up on set of a hit show is a blessing. I don't care how over, you, how over it you may be or how tired or how woe is me. You show up every day to a massive hit television show. You've got a crew that's a family and stories that are coming in literally every single day by writers who are busting their asses and you protect that with your life and you cherish it. And when an actor like Chris shows up, not only did he make like the most insane single origin coffee right there next to my dressing room, (laughs) but we had deep, incredible conversations about stuff, but all the philosophical shit went away because when the camera started rolling and he dropped in, you were literally scared of this guy not only just by his ridiculously good looks, but just how unique and nuanced these performances were. And you're like, holy shit. Okay. This guy is real. Thankfully, this man shows up 
and he is more on top of it than any of it, you know? That is gonna have to stop. Oh, you think this is annoying? Mm. Try listening to you and Bonnie bicker every five minutes. So you've been following us? Of course I have. <laughs> you are the closest thing I have to a TV. I mean, you're no Baywatch, but remember Baywatch? No, I do not. Oh, oh man, you gotta watch it. You like lifeguards, like hot ones? This has been a monumentally bad day and a sea of bad days, so I'm gonna need to know who you are, what you're doing here, and how it relates to me, or I'm gonna rip your throat out. Temper's gonna get you in trouble, Damon. It's already driven Bonnie away how many times? Oh, 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 wait, I know, 13. You think my temper's bad with her? I like her. You, not so much. Chris, did you have any like specific inspiration for Kai? Did you just read the word so? I don't even know if the word sociopath was on the page, but did you just read sociopath and go with it? it <laughs> sociopath was in, I think, every scene for a while, uh, and self-admittedly <laughs> for the character, uh, <laughs> which was fun. I remember. Uh, I don't know who wrote Julie. You might remember this. It might. I feel like it might have been Brian. Whoever wrote the scene that I read for the audition, they hadn't written any of the episodes yet. So they were had, they had the character before the episode. Um, and the scene was this like detached, horrific story. It was just a two page monologue of like how I murdered someone and chopped them up and put them in my trunk. And it was like all said with like a smile. I just remember reading it and being like, this is the darkest thing I've ever read. And it's in, and there's like a big bold note about like how it's supposed to be lighthearted and funny. Uh, I think it was, uh, I think I, it was Melinda. I, I, I cause I remember reading Melinda the sides so and being funny. like, Melinda. It, I, I know, was dark. Like, yeah. <laughs> it was dark. <laughs> Stuff that would never make it on the air. Um, but just, uh, yeah, it was, I remember in, enjoying, uh, playing that because the juxtaposition just straight out of the gate was so fun. Uh, of the darkest stuff told with a smile um, and like he's telling a joke. Family massacred in Portland. The only one missing was the oldest boy, 22-year-old named Malachi. My name's a kid Malachi. It's like they expected me to be evil. All these kids were murdered. Hello? Not everyone died? I had a soft spot for one of my sisters. So otherwise, I would have cut her lungs out and not just her spleen. What? You can survive without a spleen. Something tells me you're not speaking hypothetically. Look, well, these two, I uh, hung off a stairwell railing. Then I put a hunting knife in her abdomen. And him, I drowned in the pool. But he, he kept fighting me. And I was like, I saved you for last, you ungrateful little. Anyway, that was that. We talked a little bit about, like, Ted Bundy, if he was really funny. And, like, mm. kind of putting, like, real people into opposite um, pairings um, with characters that don't really make sense together. Um, and then I just kind of ran with it and forgot about it after a while because the, the the dialogue was so rambly that you learned so much about him because he would just kind of spit at people, uh, yeah. quite literally too sometimes. Um, but, <laughs> uh, but yeah, I think it was sort of, it was just the worst the worst person in the world who's also like maybe a good hang if you can get him to shut up for a second. Uh, it, that was sort of what I was always. <laughs> well, as writers, we were so, we were so lucky that this worked because, you know, you start a series with your villain is Damon Salvatore and Ian is Damon Salvatore. And so you sort of have 
the untoppable villain at the jump of the show. But mm-hmm. as Kevin and I talked about when we did, you know, the, the first episode, eventually you, you try, you try, you try as hard as you can to keep that villain villainous for as long as possible. But eventually the way we write our villains is the villains become the heroes, you know, first they're the heroes of their own story. And then they're ultimately the heroes of the story because when you do, when you write a lovable guy, you love to hate, eventually you love the guy. Right. And so then you, get lucky with Catherine because Catherine, thank God was like, you know, somebody that could go toe to toe with Damon and could kind of like take that mantle. And then, you know, eventually Catherine can't be Catherine and Nina all at the same time. So you need a new villain. And then you get super lucky with Klaus and like, Oh my God, how great. But like to be able to successfully match Damon Salvatore, that villain energy more than once was a small miracle. And to get it then with Kai, a completely different character, but someone who is just so fucking despicable mm-hmm. and to be able to live in him being despicable and not have to make him a good guy and not have to worry about like, let's make the fans love him and give him a love interest and give him a, you know, an emotional arc. No, none of that to actually be able to write <laughs> basically just a psychopath and then to have him like irrevocably change the landscape of the series in the series finale, that's a good mm-hmm. villain, you know? And then, because what he ultimately did was pave the way by exiting Elena from the show, pave the way back to Damon by the end of season seven, res- resuming his villain role and being able to return to the roots of everything that was darkest about him. So it really did. It was part of the cog and wheel that made the whole series come full circle. So. Thank you for being good, Chris, because if you had sucked, none of that would have none of that would have worked at all. You hear that, Chris? Terrible. You hear that? We're mere we're mere cogs in the wheel, brother. Cogs in the wheel. <laughs> Story cogs. Aren't we all? Aren't we? Story cogs. That's all we are. <laughs> uh, but Ian, I will say this, like one of the things when you were talking about the show, you know, long running show being a blessing. I mean, you know, you've been there. There's always a moment on any show when every single actor is like, please, for the love of God, kill me. Just kill me. Please don't make me come here anymore. I just went out. Um, but outside of those little moments, like which all of you guys had at one point or another, um, the thing that makes a show succeed on like an emotional level over eight years is when you have people like Ian who show up just like full of love just brimming with love, um, warmest, you know, give you a hug, flash the, you know, the baby blues. Um, uh, and just, you know, just, he always was very vocal about like, this is our family and then this is our, and you, you built a family there. You built a lot of things for yourself there with a lot of people. And so that was one of the, the parts of the blessing for sure. Well, I do want to touch on because Julie, you kind of mentioned it in terms of like audience response to villains. Julie, Kevin and I talked about um, Damon's journey a bit and specifically at the start of season two, when he snaps Jeremy's neck and how they kind of intended that to be like, he's still the villain. And yet the audience came out saying, poor Damon, you know, he just loves Elena so much. He had to kill her brother. And I'm interested in your experience with the audience reaction to, especially those early days of Damon when he was supposed to be bad, but man, did they love it. I mean, uh, to be honest with you, that scene. So by the way, this show and this character, and this is something Chris and I, I mean, obviously Julie and I spoke about at great length over the course of 
almost a decade. But Chris and I talked about this too, because we were talking about Kai. This show and this character were an enormous psychological experiment. And I mean, Mm -hmm. but at scale, right? Because Julie and I have spoken about this over the years. We had access to a tremendous amount of data sets, right? And I don't mean to Mm -hmm. sound like creepy, you know, like spying. No, I mean, just paying (laughs) attention to what people said. And I always said this, Damon could walk into, I mean, no, this is like a really, by the way, this is just an analogy. It's super dark. I'm just prefacing it by that. But I even said this, like in, in, I said this to EW in print, like this was amazing to me. Damon could literally walk into an orphanage and kill like 20 kids in cold blood. And literally the audience would say, oh, you know, he had a fight with Elena. He was in a bad mood. There was no bourbon. I mean, they would make <laughs> excuses for this man. I'm, by the way, I'm not kidding. Yeah, that's true. The audience would make excuses for this man to no end. They would follow him to the ends of the earth for a reason, I guess, was that they felt something for him, that he was authentic. He was approachable. He was vulnerable. But to speak of, Julie and Kevin had to beat it into my head. Now this is so many years ago, so it doesn't matter. It's like, it's not like, you know, gossip, but I was so upset (laughs) about, about the trajectory of Damon so much so that at one point I was sitting across from Julie in her office in Atlanta, almost in tears. So angry about this. She said, dude, I get it. Kevin had to say this too. Damon cannot be a one trick pony. This is the hundred episode arc of a man. Mind you, we didn't know it was going to be 172 episodes, but <laughs> this is a hundred, this is a hundred episode arc of a man. There are, there are ups and there are downs and there are times when he's a villain. There's times when he's a hero, just like Julie mentioned earlier. And that scene when he breaks uh, Jeremy's neck was, it, 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 it blew up in all of our faces. We were sitting there going, oh my gosh, we had no idea this was the path that this would allow us to go on. And it served the character really well. And the other thing about it, this is what I always said about Elena. And, and Chris and I joked about this too. He didn't just try and he didn't, you know, it's not like he tried to kill her brother once. He did it again. That just proves to you the level that this man, the levels that this man can go to. And that's why I was always so sort of like in love with what Chris Wood was doing on screen because up until that moment, there was never a character in the show other than Stefan in the Ripper age that actually had the ability to not be so serious, to do horrific things, but mm-hmm. do it with a smile. And we always said, even since the beginning, I remember the first Comic-Con with saying Damon Salvatore is the guy who, whether he is saving a kitten out of the tree or ripping your throat out, has the same smile on his face. And that's hard to get. And Kai, five seasons later, was the first real element that could do that. Not just by trade and how good Chris Wood is, but on the page it was there and we could run with it. And that was really special. And the audience ate it alive. And obviously, Chris, not to sound, I mean, it definitely changed your your insane and intense and incredible work on that show. Changed the trajectory, not only of the show, but obviously of your career. Um, and it's like just amazing to see you put in the work and all of a sudden the work puts you in pretty wild. It's almost like, uh, going back to what you said earlier about the, 
the 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 next snap sort of backfiring in terms of what the expected <laughs> response was. It's almost like Kai was the was the realization of what the what the fan base was responding to, what people who loved the show were responding to, and it was that juxtaposition, right? It was loving the awful things that happen and forgiving characters for things for reasons that wouldn't work on another show or in another story right. because the the rules were different. And yeah, there was something about loving the dark stuff. Yeah, then it was like there was this little like fandom faction who wanted Bonnie and Kai to get together. Oh my and god. And really 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 hostile at me when I was like, no, <laughs> I literally was like, absolutely not. And boy, did that not go over well. Did they want her to be ruined? Bonkai. <laughs> Hashtag Bonkai. Oh, I know. It's like, how funny. Our Bonnie. Bonkai. Um, Bonkai. Yeah, they really wanted, but you know, it's that, it's that fan reaction to the bad boy. You love the bad boy. Right. And we had, we had, previously redeemed all our bad boys. And so the, the pattern was there, I think, for them to see ahead and be like, oh, they've got this great chemistry. Let's redeem Kai and make Bonnie and Kai come together and be this great couple. But we just mm. so much, we were so hungry for a character that we didn't have to redeem that could just be bad through and through. And yeah, we could have a little bit of like weird, perverted compassion for him in some ways because he was, I mean, he was born a psychopath you know what i mean it's like that sucks yeah. um, he didn't he didn't handle it well though he did not <laughs> he was not mm -hmm. not a good cope right? we do have he choice we have choice <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh we have to take a quick break but we'll be right back Hey everyone, I'm Sid Evans, Editor-in-Chief of Southern Living and host of Biscuits and Jam. Since 2020, I've been interviewing musicians, chefs, authors, and other Southern icons about their family traditions, their faith, their favorite meals, and of course, what it means to be Southern. And I'm excited to announce Season 5 of our award-winning podcast. Join me every Tuesday for new conversations with some of the most interesting and influential Southerners around. Be sure to follow Biscuits and Jam wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find us online at southernliving.com slash biscuits and jam. Now back to the show. As we, as we piece through season six, we should also quickly um, touch on the massive thing you all do in season six, which is kill Liz Forbes. <gasps> what went into the decision uh, to kill Liz Forbes? Still destroys me. You know, so Marguerite McIntyre is one of my best friends in the entire world. And, um, and she was a very good friend of mine before we started this. And, and we were looking to cast the sheriff in season one, episode three. And I called her and I said, do you want to come play this part in this episode? Sheriff might be around for an episode or two. We'll probably kill her quickly. Cause that's just what we do. We kill people. <laughs> and, um, she was like, sure. And, uh, so she came and did the part and seven years later, we finally killed her. And there was a lot going into that. It was one wanting to, you know, you just are always looking for the good emotional death in the season. And mm -hmm. usually it's, you know, usually it's um, a murder, you know, it's, it's letting your villain kill somebody important, you know? And in this case, we just really wanted to tell a story of a human problem that a vampire couldn't solve. And, live in the real life, real world 
emotion of all that and let Caroline and everybody go through that. Let Damon lose his friends um, at a really pivotal time. I mean, that was a big moment for him to like not be able to help. There's nothing he could do. So it was, um, it was a good moment for all those characters to have that really um, powerful rite of passage of losing, you know, a surrogate mother, a friend, um, the mother of a girl you're falling in love with in Stefan's case, that kind of thing. Like, And it was an amazing vehicle for Caroline um, and such a farewell. She was not only so close to everyone on that set, but that character had never done wrong by anyone and was mm-hmm. such a true person and represented such a genuine sort of care and genuine, you know, she'd been through a lot, obviously with, with Caroline's dad and she'd been through, but she worked so hard for so long to keep peace and straddle that line. Um, and it was amazing to feel as Damon, as a character, to have that deep sense of emotion on screen. That was and I remember Marguerite and I looked at each other. It was that last take, I remember. And we just, I, she finished the scene and we gave each other such a hug. And everyone was like super teary because it was crazy emotional on both sides, right? As the camera was rolling, when the camera was not rolling. Um, but the great thing was is that we obviously got to keep Marguerite uh, alive and around us at all times. Because then I got to see her at the lake uh, about two <laughs> <Yeah>. days later. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Oh, gosh. I did everything right, Damon. I lived a good life. I took care of my family. It just... I know. Sometimes really terrible things happen to really amazing people. I have to admit, there is a certain amount of peace knowing I'll be one of the only people in Mystic Falls to die an ordinary death. That obviously leads directly into Caroline turning off her humanity, which Ian, I think, I think that's the first episode you directed was no humanity, Caroline, right? How did that all come about? Man, that was so much fun. So period, much period, fun period. (laughs) Jules, I think, I mean, I think you would say too, that was such an amazing, fun Turning point for Caroline as a character, but really something fun too, because anytime one of the, you know, if Paul or I were directing, it's a whole different layer of, you know, it's family, right? So there's just so much that can get done so quickly. You don't have to worry about stepping on toes or any of the BS that comes with like common niceties. (laughs) Paul and I talk (laughs) about this all the time. Obviously, Paul and I are, are in business together in a huge way. And one of the big things is, is you just cut through the BS, right? You don't have to sidestep and be, if I have an idea and Paul's like, that is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. And you go, <laughs> I'll sit in there, think about it. And I'll go, ah, oh, shit. You know what? You're right. Never mind. Let's move on. If you, if you said that to someone else in a professional circumstance, there would be a grievance filed. You can't, like, you just can't talk <laughs> to people that way. You can't. Yeah. But when you're family and you mean it with, in, in all sincerity and you know, you know, it, it was really, really, really a lot of fun. and. And that getting to push Caroline as the character into this amazing dark space that was also fun, much like a Damon or much like a Kai. I like you, Caroline. Stop. I don't know when it became more than friendship, but it did. And it scared me, so I pushed it away. But here we are. 
<laughs> wow. See, that wasn't so hard, was it? Only took a couple of years. Cancer to devour my mom, me to flip my humanity off, but you finally spit it out. That's good. Anger. That means you want to feel. No, Stefan, you know, it just means that I'm pissed, so leave me alone. Hey, hey. Let it in. It'll hurt and you'll want to die, but I will be here. I will help you through this. You have to give me a chance. That was so special. And to be able to do that with this crew and, you know, everyone gave me, you know, um, full reign to make that happen. That was really such a turning point in my life and career, to be honest with you. Um, that was, you know, Jules, thanks for for pushing to give me that opportunity because that really changed the game for me. I mean, that was the most fun I've ever had in any professional experience in my life. It was just magic. There were a lot of people that came and, and went and some people that left and then came back. And Julie and I, you know, we talk about this and it almost became like a joke, which is while this thing is happening, just never leave the mothership. Don't leave the mothership because it's not going to be around forever. It's not going to be, we're not going to be doing this for 20 years. There's a finite moment where we have this, but, and, and when you don't leave the mothership, the opportunities that you get as that goes along are just huge. And I saw on this show, people who were set PAs that became second ADs. I saw people who were pulling cable, who became uh, gaffers and huge set, you know, management pieces. And I watched it with my eyes over the course of three or five or seven or eight years. People who started as a novice became insane professionals and key positions on that set. And the whole time, the whole crew shepherded them to that. And the, no different with me going to be into directing. Every single person on this set wanted me to succeed with flying colors. No one wanted anyone to fail. Man, what an amazing opportunity that was because it is not that way out in the world. <laughs> People <laughs> want you to fail. Um, and uh, this is just, gosh, what a special um, experience this was. I'm just mm -hmm. having now all these memories. We spent a lot of time shouting out like actors and writers and, and, and stuff like that. But like, we have this group of crew that were there for the entire time, or, you know, give or take one season where they went to do something and came back and you just, you end up alouettes. Like you end up at a Thanksgiving, you know, with, with at the Thanksgiving dinner table, when you can't go home for Thanksgiving, you're at their family Thanksgiving there. You, they, the AD would have wine tasting nights with um, one of the camera guys and they would invite us all over. And it was just oh, a sunny old Saturday. Night. Best bottleneck. Best bottle and you think like, oh, insane. like, you know, there's good, it's nice. It'll be a nice crew hang. And then you get there and it's like the entire cast, so much of the crew, like, all, and then we just like, and being in Georgia really helped that because we just all wanted to kind of spend time together and we got really close and real true friendships were built. And in that, like Ian said, you want to, you want to coach people up. You want to see people realize their ambitions and you want to nurture their, their ambitions. And when you're doing 22 episodes a year for eight years, you can nurture people's ambitions because there are slots that you can give them to direct. And there mm -hmm. are, there is the opportunity to say, Hey, you know what? We're eight years in. 
we're not a low budget show anymore. Like if you want to be, if you, this camera person that wants to be a DP, well, you know what, we're going to put you in, in an episode and we're going to pay you to be a DP and like, and still pay the other DP for sitting out an episode because we can, you know? And, um, and that was the fun part over the years was watching people grow and evolve into their next steps. Jules, just to add to that, there was an inordinate amount of leadership from the beginning as well. You know, in 2009, when we launched, I don't know if anyone remembered, the whole world fell apart in 08. A lot of people were coming off of, these people only did $100 million movies. Yeah. And they were coming off of these huge studio systems and these huge movies with this A-list level and priority of craftsmanship and, and, and experience that then had the ability to guide everyone underneath them. These young people that Julie was talking about had the most insane guidance and we all grew from them, you know? And Chris, did you see that? Like, you know, it's not, it can't be easy, which is why it was cool for you because you came on in such a powerful character and you just crushed every day. But it's got to be a little intimidating coming onto a set like that that's so far down the road. Most times sets like that are people are so jaded and they just show up and say the words, yada, yada, yada. That would have been weird. It was, I mean, I was thinking that when you were talking about the, uh, just the the line between you know, literally above and below the line. And there wasn't this separation that sometimes happens with other shows. And I think more than any other job I've ever been on, there wasn't this gap, there wasn't this chasm between, you know, those literally above and below. Uh, It was like, you'd wrap on a Friday night, and it would be an ungodly hour. And then you'd stay up until another ungodly hour hanging out with these people at a bar. And at the Krog bar. I I remember going to Super Street. I remember going to Super Bowl parties and the wine fest bottle nights, like just just being welcomed into the family so quickly. It took, I think, I think there's there's an assessment period when you get there. Like, <laughs> how long are you sticking around? And butts, yeah, we you sniffed break, your butt. We sniffed your butt a couple times. <laughs> yeah, you gotta smell. You gotta smell the junk and see what's He's going good. on. And, He's good. And, and everyone's like, okay, he can play at the dog park. We're good, you know. But I, I, I did feel right away oh these people are so close and it it was it's intimidating because you know you also want to like not disrupt everything in a bad way and so it was also funny being paired with my job literally being to annoy ian summerhalder uh <laughs> <laughs> so uh, but thankfully we we got along uh ah. totally great off camera but then starting scenes and just my job was to make him miserable um i was just taking notes i was just taking notes as far as like uh acting stuff um but no you're right chris when you'd show up to that bar we'd show up to someone's house you're not talking about like 10 or 15 people you're talking sometimes a massive 40 or 60 people yeah like mm-hmm. that's unheard of i've never seen that um on a set and i think looking back not realizing and, and at this stage i was at in my career too, just knowing that I had this fun character and knowing, you know, it was a genre show and there was room to play in a way that's different than playing something sort of more subdued or more of a straight drama, not realizing at the time how lucky you are to be able to play in a space with a group of people who are so accepting of it and also so friendly. And, and really, I mean, I think everyone says like, Oh, we're a family, but more than any, any job I've ever worked on before or since, it really was this unit 
Um, and there wasn't a distinction. And if anyone wanted to carry that distinction for themselves, they just were allowed to go do that and not be a part of it. But everyone was a part of it. So it was like, <laughs> there wasn't really room to, you know, be a jerk. Um, no, and it was, it, it was, it was pretty special. And looking back, I'm, I, I'm every year that passes, I'm more grateful for, um, you know, my time on the show and, and what it taught me and what I've carried forward, you know, since, but, and that's on these guys, you know, Julie sets the bar at a very specific level and, and has a no assholes policy that trickles down and, 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 and I, enforce you know, she it. calls people out. <laughs> yeah. And then, and then Ian enforces it. And then, you know, Paul enforces it when, when Ian's not around, but that's tough because it's Paul. So <laughs> Paul is the asshole. <laughs> <laughs> Said with all the love with and nothing humor, in oh my God. humor in the world. Yeah, no, that's that was always our favorite joke because Paul Paul just had a little cranky period early in season two that we never let him live down, like never. And so we just love tormenting him with like, remember that time you were a total asshole. Um, Did you say so. little cranky period? <laughs> Paul and I have so much interaction. Guys, you have no idea. I, I still have the same level of interaction with Paul Wesley that I did in 2010, except now it's not just, un, it's not just set because we're not, our dressing room isn't down, down the hall, but we're always like this. I interface with Paul Wesley all day long it's crazy and building out this tour now with this pandemic and stuff though but like we're building out you know so many cities and you know we have to then we're gonna have to do probably a, most of it on a turbo prop which is gonna freak paul out too so i'm gonna have to sit there and <laughs> dose him <laughs> i'm gonna have to dose him with our own bourbon just to keep him like you know if anyone ever saw the a team right i don't know if you remember mr t you know um this is a much younger crowd but um, <laughs> no, hello. It's amazing, amazing how much time <laughs> I spend with Paul Wesley. No, you guys, I love it. I love watching you do this, this bourbon. Like it's just, I mean, seeing the the key art and seeing the brothers together, and like, uh, I don't know, and seeing you guys out there, like you know, selling your wares and having success. And are you getting a cut, Julie? I feel like you should be getting a cut. No, you know what? Neil Reynolds texted me when when it came out. He's like, "There's some responsibility." This? And I was like, "I am not." <laughs> I am not. Uh, that's okay. That's so that I texted. I'm like, I need a free bottle of bourbon, please send it to me. Um, oh. But you know, talking about talking about you and Paul, Ian is like, you guys. Um, there's that moment when you return from the prison world, and Stefan is like oh. at rock bottom and is like so emotional and can't take it anymore. And you're in the crypt, and he throws the bottle, and then you catch the bottle, and that M83 song comes on, which is like one of the yes. best music moments of the show. I will never forget that moment because it was, it was just so well done, so well acted. The perfect song is, you know, everything. Brett Matthews wrote that. In a couple months, you think it's okay to waste a perfectly good bottle of bourbon? Yeah. Yep. In the flesh. I want to see you right now. Because I'm not dead, Seven. 
I mean, this stuff's good, but it's not. I see dead people good. <laughs> it's a hell of a long story, brother, but I'm back. It just made me realize, like, this is the love story right here. Because we knew Nina was leaving by then, right? So this is the love story. This show, this these brothers is the love story. And that's the love story that moving forward we need to honor so much, you know? And um, I just love, and then the Stefan and Damon love story that sort of launched the series because they were, you know, hate nothing but hate. And then so deeply in love that they're the ones that find each other in the afterlife. You know what I mean? Like that to me was the, was the really special part of the show when all said and done. I was going to say, I did have hopes in, in the very end of the run. Cause I came back, I think it was three episodes at the end. I came back for, um, at the end of season eight. And I did have hopes because, you know, I had taken Nina out. I was sort of hoping that I'd get to kill another of the leading characters, but it didn't work out that way. <laughs> Um, I've always had some, some FOMO. Sure. And then, and then, and I, and then I used to hang out with, with Chris Wood all the time. And then Paul kind of stole him from me. And then I, you know, it's been so long, uh, since, you know, I haven't we, seen you, man. Uh, it's been, been a couple. Congrats on everything, brother. Congrats on. He's a dad. You're both dads now. Fatherhood. Dude. Two dads. Dad. Yeah. It's two dads. Good Lord. That's the Who new show. Best that? job. Oh my God. That's the new show. Come on, Chris. Let's do it. <laughs> I mean, congrats, brother. It's so, it makes my heart so warm. Likewise, man. Likewise. Julie, you know, Nina is leaving. Where does the sleeping spell idea come from? And dare I ask if you ever considered killing Elena? <laughs> the problem with doing eight years of a TV show is your memory gets very spotty. <laughs> and so I've been struggling to remember what led us to that. And I texted everyone I knew. <laughs> I still have no answers. Um, I think it was, we had killed so many people so tragically that we didn't want to just take the easy way out with Elena. And so we were sure. taking sort of a, you know, sort of a risk and like, will Nina come back to close this story up? I mean, we sort of had no reason to think she wouldn't, but like, you never know what, like what happens to someone's career if they're busy, if they're shooting in another country, um, you know? And so we took this risk of saying, we really just want, we want to put Elena's survival and we talked about this earlier, Elena's survival in Damon's hands. And, the, and mm-hmm. we want to, have Damon in that situation to have to make those decisions um, because that ultimately was so much more about his character, which was the character that was staying. If we had killed Elena, then it would just be nothing but grief. And we wouldn't really be able to, to tell 
the kind of stories we wanted to tell without the heaviness of, of her loss. And so keeping her around was this hope. This on the other side of all this is this hope. And it and it also really made us realize like we didn't need to worry about Damon having another love story. We didn't need to worry about a lot of things. It was like, how can now we have all the fun in the world with Damon because Elena's endgame and that's down the road. Um, and that's the, just the way it's going to be. So it opened up a lot of storytelling opportunities for him in the two seasons that we had left to go. But I can't for the life of me remember <laughs> who pitched the Sleeping Beauty spell. I just can't remember. Me. And it's such a big one. It was you. <laughs> By the way, I mean, it could have been. You're very good. <laughs> You're very clever. <laughs> <laughs> one final question we can wrap this baby up going toward the end of the season i want to know because obviously at the end of the season is when kai comes back and arguably like one of the most shocking entrances very dark at rick's mm-hmm. wedding and then of course damon mm-hmm. gets to be the one ultimately to decapitate him what do you all remember about filming that entire chaotic sequence that sequence was days Right, Chris? That was like a couple days, of days. Days. It was a lot of us. Everyone was in suits and tuxedos. Not just simple wardrobe. It was all... I mean, it was beautiful and scary. And at one point, I just remember thinking, wow, what is going through Chris's head? Because it's really dark, right? And there's crying and... Yeah. every You know, poor Alaric. <laughs> poor Alaric. He's just the sweetest. He just gets his ass handed to him. On the reg. Jody had been literally since Aunt Jenna, the only successful relationship that we had with Alaric with, yeah. it's Joe. Jody Lynn was just like so cool and just a, such a rad chick. And like her blue eyes staring up at his face and her smarts and everything. Like Joe and Alaric was a really meaningful coupling for us because we had never been able to get it right with Alaric. And we had mm-hmm. always sort of fizzled out on every relationship or like killed his, you know, his partners. And so to actually give, put them together and earn them to a place of like happiness and marriage and babies and life and the happily ever after. And then to just have this guy come in and just take that all away. Just so good. So mean. It's so good. <laughs> I thought I thought for sure, you know, like the 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 next step level. I thought for sure that you had done it, you know, because I know the mission from the beginning was like he, the guy's not going to be able to be redeemed. He's just going to be awful to everyone, and then people love the character. But I remember Julie, you were like, "It's my mission to like turn this on its head." Um, and between the Elena sleep situation. She's gone, killing everyone at the wedding. Babies, uh, you which killed I think twins. included like thirty Did of my I? family members, and yeah, it was like insane. It worse. <laughs> it's literally like I think we we counted at one point. It was like thirty three, like recurring characters that I killed or something. Oh. It was an insane <laughs> amount of people that like jobs I took from people, <laughs> um, and I, something. I, I, I mean, I, I think the people respond to the story point to, you know, what it, what it motivated and what it sort of set up. So in some ways we forgive because of what we get as a result of these horrific things. Uh, but that was one of the, that was one of the darkest days on that set ever. Just yeah. dead people, blood, glass. It was, it was everywhere. It was dark. 
It was dark. Dead people everywhere. You know what? Because you did kill so many big characters and so many characters, I now understand why our catering got so good. (laughs) Amazing splatters. It was those threats. That was dark, man. Yeah, that was a dark day. (laughs) A dark day. People flying through glass. That was one of my favorite, favorite like cliffhanger moments. Just all of that. That whole run of like, I just killed everybody. I and I put Elena of... in a spell. Oh, the explosion, <laughs> your rival. You like, miss me? Yeah, that's it. That's right. Yeah, yeah. That was uh, the end of the episode. Right. And then that was right. the next one we picked oh up. God. Oh my God. Miss me? Yeah. But that turn of events was, I mean, and then it just set the stage for the rest of the series, you know? And um, let us, let us really explore Damon in all kinds of different ways for the last two, which um, for a character like that, who you've loved for so long, but like, you know, want to keep being able to play that duality of that, of, of who he is to be able to circle back around, which we'll talk about in the next episode. Um, in episode eight, I mean, to, um, back to his, his roots of, of evil. It's, it's all, it's all good. I will say, I will say, um, I know that you're not on season eight yet, but that was a great joy coming back sort of bookend the yeah. show out. Um, and just Ian and I going on Remember, we had all that crap in the car and then in the, in the restaurant with the bloody mouth selfie and all, we just, it was just fun <laughs> to go back to that character after, you know, like a year and a half away and, uh, you know, doing it, how it started. Um, just annoying. Ian. <laughs> it was so fun. Oh, I selfie city. Ah. Yeah, there it is. Let's get a few likes while we wait. Oh no, that's new. What's happening to you? I think I might be starting to slip back into he double hockey sticks. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I hope Bonnie comes up with something good. Because my clock's ticking. And if I go, so does your shot at happiness. I remember that day, you and Paul. You and Paul were killing me. The scene in the bar? Yeah, were just ragging on me, pranks on me, on my coverage. You guys were like <laughs> cracking jokes and farting and stuff. It was unbelievable. <laughs> It was oh, unreal. It was so, was but time. it was so good to have you back. And then time. those were the days, man. Wow, the final days. All right. Well, I think, I think that about covers everything. Thank you all so so much for doing this. This has been so fun. Sam, you rock. More vampire goodness to come next week on our next episode of Entertainment Weekly's binge, The Vampire Diaries. You can stream all eight seasons of The Vampire Diaries on Netflix right now. Make sure you're subscribed wherever you get audio and follow Entertainment Weekly at EW on Twitter and at Entertainment Weekly on Instagram. And you can catch me on Twitter or Instagram at Sam Highville.